take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning is kind of a continuation of last week's sermon. Uh, same title, The Mission of God's People, but we're going we're gonna to look at it from a different angle this morning. Last week we were in Exodus chapter 19. This week we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me clarify one thing uh, about one of my announcements earlier. If you want to give money for the bins, give that directly to me. Don't put it in the offering plate because I won't be able to get that until tomorrow. So if you're going to do that, give that directly to me and we'll, I'll take care of that. that. I want to clarify that with you. 1 Peter chapter 2, um, living called out. We're still there, going to be there for a while. Let me ask you, when you travel, have you ever gotten a hotel room upgrade? Maybe, maybe you're just a Motel 6 person and there is no upgrade. You know, it's, it's just the room. Uh, and, and I understand that and I completely respect that decision. Uh, with our traveling circus, we, we have to have a little more room than what normally a Motel 6 can offer. So it's, it's always nice if you get there and, and you're just getting the, the basic room and they say, oh, well, we've got one that's bigger or a suite or maybe, uh, maybe you get the, the jacuzzi tub or, or something like that. As I said, with our traveling circus, though, we're usually just forking out the money for whatever we're staying in so we can have the room for everybody to have their spot to sleep. What is actually better, what I've enjoyed most is, uh, have you ever been up bumped to first class when you're flying? Now that is sweet. One time, one time I got that. Uh, it was actually the first time I'd ever flown. I was 18 years old. I was flying from Baton Rouge to Connecticut, I think, to see my brother when he lived up there. And the flight got delayed like two or three hours outside of Baton, uh, leaving Baton Rouge, and and they bumped me to first class. Uh, I thought, hey, if this happens every time, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to like this flying business. Well, it ain't never happened since, but I got that one time. And what that meant was, of course, you know, more room and all this stuff. It also meant a better lunch. Because they weren't feeding anybody in the fed us lunch. It was some sort of what they call chicken salad. It weren't no chicken salad like I'd grown up on, let me tell you. Um, it had, I think it had grapes and nuts and celery. And it's just, it was, the chocolate, little, little chocolate things they gave were good. That was really good. I enjoyed my dessert um, on first class because chocolate is a gift from God. We discussed that in Sunday school this morning, didn't we? Didn't we, JR? I don't know where you sit on Sunday morning. So uh, there you are. Okay, yeah, we, we did, didn't we? So, you know, that's, that's enjoyable, though, right? You, you were expecting one thing. You're expecting the, to sit like this on your flight wherever you're going, but instead you actually get to, to spread out a little bit, and I, I tend to spread out. Um, and, and, and your credentials didn't earn it, did they? You didn't pay for first class because, really, who in their right mind pays for first class? Um, I'm sorry if anybody here pays for first class. I may have just offended a few of you, and if you do, you are completely in your right mind, and I'm just impressed you can afford it. Now, that's, that's really what it boils down to. I am not paying for first class. I'm going to get the seat. I might pay for the exit row. I might do that so I'll have a little more leg room, but I'm just not going to pay for it. But when your credentials don't earn the upgrade, when you're not a, a, a million miler with, 
United or American or whoever you fly, or, or you're not a Hilton Diamond member. Uh, your, your credentials don't get you that upgrade. It's even sweeter. You, you're owed it if you fly all those miles. You're owed it if you stay with Hilton that often. But if you're just a peon like me, you don't, you're not owed that. Well, Peter tells us in, in this passage we're going to look at this morning that that's exactly what happened to us. We were upgraded. We, we got first-class seating even though we were second-class citizens. We're going to look at that. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, if you were here last week, you should, this should seem familiar. You should, this would be like an echo for you. A people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Leading up to this, uh, in verses 4 through 10 specifically, Peter quotes or alludes to six Old Testament passages. Six of them. Uh, Psalm 118, 22, Exodus 19, 5 through 6, Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah 43, and Hosea 2. And I'm going to show you, uh, I'll mention those verses again so you can say, oh, it's here, and it's here, and it's here. If you wanna, don't want to write those down now, or if you do, go ahead, but the screen is about to change. Peter also, in this, uh, in this passage, 4 through 10, shows an incredibly close relationship between Christ and believers. In chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 4a, Christ is the living stone. But in 4b, he turns it around and says that believers are living stones. In verse 5, he says believers are a spiritual house. In, ver in 6a, he says Christ is a cornerstone, the cornerstone of that house. In, chapter, in uh, verse 6b, believers are never to be ashamed because in verse 7a, the cornerstone is an honor to the believers. See, we're comparing Christ and the believers. And then verses uh, 7b through 8a, Peter talks about the downfall of those that reject the living stone. And in 8b, he talks about stumbling over that stone as the destiny of believers. So to open this up, Peter is talking about Jesus is this, and you as believers, you, you match that. You, you blend with that. You are a, a part of that. I, I'm going to now start using, Peter says, terminology that would have normally only applied to Jesus in reality Peter's using terminology that would have only applied, applied to God. He's going to start using that to apply to Jesus, and then he's going to turn around and say, now that's what you are as well as believers. So it's pretty radical stuff Peter's writing here, and it would be great sermons to go through that, but we're not going to. Each of those passages flips an Old Testament descriptor. Jesus, God was this. Well, now Jesus is this. That same thing, but, but people, listen, y'all are that as well. Jesus is the living stone. Y'all are living stones to build this house. And you can kind of see the progression if you go back and read how he's expanding this image. But let's look at what he calls us now in verses 9 through 10. 
He's going to continue to flip those Old Testament descriptors. He's going to continue to pull from Old Testament passages and then apply them to us as believers, giving us that, that upgrade. He says, first of all, that we are a chosen race in verse 9a. So that, that a there means it's just that first little phrase of, of verse 9. This goes back to Isaiah 43.3. Now in Isaiah, what he's talking about in particular is a common family lineage. He's telling them all the way back to Abraham, y'all are the same family, the same uh, uh, generation, the same race of people, the same group of people. He's also, in uh, Isaiah 43.3, he's telling them to proclaim God's praises after this Babylonian captivity. That's that's what Isaiah is, is talking about here. You'll be carried off into captivity, and when you come out, praise God for your deliverance as this chosen race brought out. But what Peter is doing here is he is dividing them, but not, not dividing them in a, a negative way, but he's, he's setting believers apart and saying, believers, y'all are part of now a new race, a chosen race. It's, it's distinct from ethnicity. What Isaiah was talking about was the Jewish race. Now, we talked about, uh, particularly in the message when I came to view a call, Built in Unity, how it, we are all a, a part of this, this one race, this one race of believers, and how even last week we talked about when they brought Israel out of uh, Egypt, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, Israel wasn't just all Jew when they brought them out of there. There was a number of different ethnicities already. So even then, God's people was a mixed bag. Now more so, because Peter is now talking to Gentiles. He's talking to us. The word I used last week, goyim, the, the people who are not of Jewish lineage, and saying, you are part of this group. You are part of this family. You can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham, right? Father Abraham, had many sons. Did y'all, am I the only one that sang that song? You're all looking at me like I'm nuts. It's just that I sang it through, completely through you. Wait, he's singing? Is this the, did we mess up the sermon? No, we are all sons of Abraham, and I'm one of them. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. We have been, various passages in the New Testament tell us we've been grafted in to this family. Peter says you are a new race a new people, a chosen race. It is a bond that is stronger than any other. Jesus often talked about, you know, somebody say, well, I, I join you, Jesus, but, you know, I got to go bury my dead relative. And he would say, you know, let, let your family who is dead spiritually bury your family that's dead physically. You have greater, uh, a greater responsibility now because you're part of a different family, a new family. No one... Uh, or if you don't leave mother and father, if you don't leave your, your children to follow me, you, I'm going to bring enmity between family members. Why? Why would he say all those things? Because we are part of a new family now, a, a bond that is stronger than family bonds or work bonds or even marriage bonds or friendship bonds. Not because we're supposed to leave those necessarily, when we become Christian, and specifically we're not supposed to break up our marriage because we become a believer and the spouse doesn't. We are supposed to stay in that marriage, so don't hear me, don't go leaving this morning and say, well, Michael said I'm supposed to divorce my husband if he doesn't become a Christian. No, that's not what Michael said. 
Michael's going to specifically say right now, you stay with your unbelieving spouse. As Paul says later on, or, or earlier in Scripture. But what I will say is that the bond between you and Christ and the bond between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ is stronger than any other bond and should be stronger than any other bond you have. And so you serve Christ first. And where Christ tells you to leave a group because they don't allow you to serve Christ the way you should, then you should leave that group. But where Christ tells you to stay with someone, as in an unbelieving spouse, then you stay with that person and be a blessing to that person and pray that that person will be saved because of your witness to them. So he says you're a chosen race in 9a. He says to us Christians, using Jewish terminology, that we are a royal priesthood in verse 9b. This goes back to last Sunday's message uh, from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. We are to mediate God in Christ to the nations. The same way the Jewish nation was to mediate God to the nations then, we are to mediate God in Christ to the nations now. Now we just understand who the Messiah is. They understood a Messiah was coming. We now know who he is, but our role is now the same. And as a priesthood, we are to not make physical animal sacrifices, but we are to make spiritual sacrifices. That should kind of ring a bell of maybe Romans 12 where we are to lay our lives on the altar, present ourselves a living sacrifice, which he says is a, some translations say, spiritual act of service. It is a spiritual sacrifice. That's what we do as a, a, as a royal priesthood. Now, I talked about priesthood of the believer a little bit last week. I'm not going to go into great detail uh, with it this morning either. But I will say that sometimes we as Protestants get so focused on the individuality of me as a priest, meaning me, not me the pastor as a priest, I mean me as a Christian, as someone with direct access to God, which I absolutely do have, which is why we focus, uh, focus so strongly on the priesthood of the believer. Sometimes we focus so strongly on it, we forget that we are a community of priests and that Peter was telling us to work as a community of priests. See, in the Old Testament, the priests didn't do things individually too often. They worked together. They were called as a nation to work together, to be as a nation an example of what it is to follow Yahweh. We as Christians are called to be a, uh, a royal priesthood, grouped together in community, showing the outside world, showing the world who doesn't know Christ, what it is to follow Christ. Sadly, the things we show sometimes aren't as Christ-like as they should be, which is why we're going through this now and for the next few weeks to see what we can do better as a church, as a royal priesthood, to reach our community and show the love of Christ to them. It is community. It's not individuality. It is royal, so we are set apart Peter here is both foreshadowing holiness, set apart, we're royal, we're, we're set apart, but he, he also uh, used chosen, we're a chosen race, that foreshadowed royal, see how we're just really narrowing it down, you're chosen, you're royal, you're holy, 
Do you get how precious we are as his followers, but do you also get how set apart we are supposed to be as his followers, how different we are supposed to be from the world? And if you don't, well, he keeps going and helps us understand it. Verse 9c, a holy nation. This also goes back to Exodus 19. Again, a nation no longer bound by ethnicity. This is not uh, a nation of one, uh, one similar-looking group of people. This is a nation whose marks are not skin color or, or facial features or anything like that, but whose marks are obedience and sanctification. That's the mark of this holy nation. When we look like God, not when we look like each other. That is a holy nation. That is what God is setting us out to be. Now, let's be honest here. Both for Rome at that time when Peter was writing this, and for us today, a new nation, that idea is polarizing. If you don't believe me, start a, a blog on the Internet and start talking about how you're going to form a new nation. And maybe you're going to set up new leaders and you're going to you know, start using some of that language and see if somebody doesn't catch wind of what you're doing. Well, very similar uh, in Rome. They started talking about themselves as a new nation. Someone is set apart. They didn't, they didn't fit into to Rome. Rome's called them atheists because they didn't worship Caesar as God. The people wouldn't, Christians wouldn't be a part of their labor unions, their guilds. Because the, the things that went on at the labor meetings, sacrifices and orgies and that kind of thing that was kind of part of good business, well, you got to go drinking with them to get them to buy your stuff. I mean, that was kind of the basic idea that they had. And Christians started pulling back and saying, we can't be a part of that anymore. To the extent that Rome got a little worried. Oh, really? You're going to start your own country now? No, that's not what we mean. And, and that wasn't what they meant. And over time, they actually began to win people to their new nation because of their love, because they could say, we're a new nation, a new race, a new people, a new group, we're different, but that doesn't mean we hate you or going to kill you if you don't join us. As a matter of fact, we love you whether you're a part of our nation or not, our new group or not, our new uh, race or not. We're going to love you anyway. That should be one of the hallmarks of the church. But this new nation idea is, is, is tough on us. As Americans, we are extremely proud of our country m most of the time. We're proud of our, our, our history, our, our lineage. We're proud of those who have fought for our freedoms. We are the greatest nation on earth, I have no doubt. But our first allegiance is to this holy nation that God set up, not to the American nation. So where America diverges from the holy nation, we follow the holy nation. We follow God. Where America is no longer biblical, we chuck America and we say, I will follow God. Now that might get me in trouble, but that's kind of what Christians do. Is they get in trouble with people who don't understand and can't follow the fact that I will be first loyal to God and his word and then loyal to everybody else. Sometimes you get your tax-exempt status taken away. Sometimes you get your head taken away. Well, 
whatever I have to give up to follow God is what I'm going to do. And I pray that is the, the rallying cry of every church in the nation. We are Christians first. We're Americans second. And then we're whatever else. I'm a Linton. I'm, I'm a, I'm a LSU Tiger. I'm a, not yet, but I intend to be a sulfur tour. NATO, or do we just stop at tour? Just tour, okay. I, I wanna, you know, eventually I'll be one of those too, but I am a Christian first. And where any of those things, American, Linton, Tiger, tour, where any of those things interfere with me being a Christian, I reject those things, and I'm a Christian first. A holy nation. We are God's possession, he says in verse 9d. This is Exodus 19, also goes back to Exodus or Isaiah 43. Y'all, ownership means control. If I am somebody's possession, that means I am for their use, not the other way around. If God is my possession, then I can pray, God, I need a million dollars and he'll give it to me because I prayed it. I had enough faith that he would give it to me. I had to have it because I wanted it. I own him, therefore he is at my beck and call, if God is my possession. But if I am God's possession, and I believe that's what Peter says, oh, yep, that's what he says, then I am to do what God tells me to do. Uh, one way to look at it is we are tools, not trinkets. We are something to be used to do something with, not something to sit on a shelf and look nice. We don't become Christians to come in and keep a pew warm. These pews are fine without you. We are tools in his tool bag. We are all different types of tools. Some of us are duller than others. Some of us are more useful for particular things. Some of us can be used for any number of things. Some of us are very specific. I've tried to hammer with a screwdriver. It doesn't work really well. I've also tried to screw things in with the, the, the claw of the hammer because I didn't have the screwdriver. It doesn't work really well. They were specific. They, they, they had a purpose. Each one of us has a purpose as God's possession. But none of us is something cute and pretty to sit up and for God to look at and say, I sure am glad I've got that. That's not what we are. We are tools, not trinkets. And we are tools regardless of our task, regardless of our specialty in, in ministry. We all have the same purpose, which is the end of verse 9, to proclaim his praises. Now, I may, I may be a shovel that does certain things, but in my work of digging holes as a shovel, as a tool of his, I proclaim his praises. The whole time I'm digging the hole. I may be a hammer that drives nails, but the entire time I'm driving nails as his tool, I'm proclaiming his praises. We are all called to the same purpose. This is why we exist. This was Israel's response after the Babylonian captivity. It is our response after our captivity to sin. To proclaim his praises. If we have been saved, we have something to tell other people about. If we've not been saved, then keep your mouth shut because you really don't have that much to share spiritually. We are tools of his to proclaim his praises. And in proclaiming those praises, we're sharing the gospel. 
Now, evangelism is not, God is so good. That is true. That is a true statement. And that may reflect what God is doing in your life, but that is not evangelism. Evangelism is explaining the gospel to someone and then asking for a response. That's evangelism. So don't call telling people, well, God bless you, evangelism, because it's not. But it is good to proclaim the praises of God so that people can see how he has affected your life. Think of someone you know that if you saw them at work on Monday and suddenly they came to you and said, I just want to tell you how good God is. And it's somebody that right now you're thinking of, if they told you that, you would fall flat out. I mean, you'd be gone. There's no way that person would tell you that. If you can get that image in your head, that should be our regular response to what God has done in our, in our lives through salvation. Because as, as flat out as you would fall when, when, when that person tells you on Monday, there might be someone that falls just as flat out if you use the same language. I didn't mean to step on any toes there, but, but would people be surprised if you were a Christian? Would people be surprised if you came to work Monday morning proclaiming the praises of God? If so, you've got issues, and it's something we can work on, something we can move forward. Because, y'all, every one of us who has been saved has experienced salvation through Jesus Christ. First Peter says, we have gone from darkness to marvelous light. Y'all, that's exciting. That, that, is, that, that should be like... You know when you flip the light on in the morning, it's dark and, and, you, and, you're in, you're and you don't want to wake up the rest of the house, so you wait till you get to the bathroom to flip the light on, you flip it on, and oh, yeah. Our, that change in our lives is that, should be that blinding to people. I am that different now than I was before Christ saved me. We have gone from darkness to marvelous light. And then verse 10 echoes Hosea 2.23. All of this is by God's mercy and nothing else. It's, it's not about you, it's all about God. It, it's not, not what you do. It's not to lift you up, but to lift God up. You contribute nothing to your salvation. You, you, you don't bring anything worthwhile you, you, you come naked, naked, supposed to say, right? Naked, not naked. Naked, exposed, open, broken, worthless. How does that sound like anything God really needs? He just wants you. He says, I just want you to say, I've got nothing. Come to me Say you have nothing, understand that you contribute nothing, and it is his initiative to save you. God calls you. Now, I believe God calls everybody. I don't have a problem saying that. I believe we choose not to come to him broken and naked and exposed. And we say, I don't need that. But he calls us all. Y'all, he chose to bump you to first class. You didn't deserve it. 
you, 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 did, you weren't a Diamond God member. You didn't have a million God miles, and wow, I get, to, I get upgraded. He upgraded you because of his mercy, because of his grace. He said, you know what? I'm going to take this people who are not my people, and I'm going to make them my people by my grace. And the, the Jews in the audience, their eyes got big when Peter would say something like this, when Paul would go to the Gentiles, when Jesus would talk to the Samaritans. But that's because Jesus wants everybody to come to him. So this morning, I need you to understand that before you can be part of a new nation, you have to be a new person. Because that nation is made up of people. But that new race, a, a holy a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, that is made up of individuals who have all called out to Jesus for salvation. Have all gotten to the point in their lives that they realize that they could not save themselves. They did not have it in themselves to do it. And so they call out to him. They understand, as Paul wrote, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I were more like some preachers that I listen to in podcasts, I'd tell you to turn to your neighbor and tell them they're a sinner, but that's kind of rude. But it's true. Every one of you could be told that you're a sinner because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, y'all, even though we have lost that, part of us, that, that, that spiritual part of us is dead while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for you and for me, because he knew the wages of sin were death, was death, is death. He knew that we could not fix it on our own. There was a definite reward for our disobedience, and that reward was hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. When he died for us, that was it. That was all that was necessary. You don't have to earn it. Some of you are thinking right now, it's too easy, Michael. There's just no way I can just believe. I've got to do something. No. No, you don't. It really is that simple. I won't say easy. Nothing easy about the Christian life, and I won't lie to you and tell you it is. I'll, I'll read, you know, Matthew 5, 6, 7, talk about the persecution that you can experience and, and expect, but I will tell you it is simple and it is worth it. God proved his love by dying for you. Every one of you. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It, it is up to you, though, to, to, to do that, to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, or confess with your mouth, rather, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Michael, can I do that this morning? Yeah, you can. Can, can. can it be real for me this morning? Yes, it can. In a minute, I'm going to pray, and, and I'm going to pray that you would do these things, but... In that prayer, 
while I'm praying, I want you to cry out to God to save you. And I'm not going to give you words to say. I just want you to pray. I'm a sinner. I know it. I know I deserve death. But God, you sent your son to die for me. And this morning, I call on your name. I confess that you're Lord, and I believe that God has raised you from the dead. I mean, that, that's it. That is really it. And I pray that you would do that this morning as I pray with you. Lord, we do thank you, God, that you have called us out as a group, as a community, as a, as a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. But Lord, you have also called us individually. And this morning, there is someone within the sound of my voice that is being called to be a chosen person. That you are leading to yourself with the gospel. And I pray this morning that as I pray, that they would respond. I'm a sinner, and I can't save myself. I'm an alien to your country. I'm an enemy to you, but, but I want you to fix that relationship, and it can only be done through Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning that you would save me, Lord. I call on your name. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe that God raised you from the dead for my sins. God, I pray that across this room or later this week as folks watch this on either TV or the internet, hear a podcast, that they respond to the gospel. And Lord, that they would share it with us, what you are doing. Lord, for us as a community of believers, Lord, that you would unite us, you would use us, God, that we would consecrate ourselves to your mission just to relate your praises and God if nothing else in our life goes right we have our salvation to praise you for and really that's the thing we need to share anyway not how you gave us a new boat or more money or a bigger house or whatever but that you saved our souls Lord we pray this morning that we would be a mouthpiece for your praises and your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.